Good morning, America. Is that right? Good morning, America. Welcome to the Tory Says Show. I have to apologize for not being um, on air the past couple of days. Uh, something has occurred that um, uh, has caused me much duress that I do not wish to speak of at the moment, as I don't know much. But keeping my my daughter in your prayers would be appreciated. My little Phoebe. So having said that, I think it's time we revisit things that I've been saying for many years. History repeats itself and how evil cannot create, it can only mimic. And how they have a plan, literally a structure that they will use again and again and again and again. In 2010, I realized that I have seen this movie before. You know when you, when you enter a situation in your life and you're like, hey, I've seen this movie before. I think I got the t-shirt. I'm a gold member. I'm not going to do this, right? I'm not going to do this. How many of you have been in that situation? Well, that was me in 2010 when I observed and I said, oh, I've got to be harder. I've got to find ways to throw wrenches because the last one worked out perfectly. So here's where we're going to go back in time today. Back in time to when we first got our central currencies done. What? See, here's the problem. An, an uneducated America makes a very vulnerable America. History is always being rewritten. Statues are being taken down. Why? Keyword. Why? Why, why, why? Let's talk about when there was foreign influence in America to shape the America today. Almost like an in increments. Think of it this way. You know, I, 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 for my ladies and gentlemen out there, how many of you have downloaded like fitness, my fitness pal or something like that? I don't even subscribe to that stuff, but I've seen it. I was, I was watching some TikToks yesterday and it kind of was like, damn, how do I demonstrate this? So yesterday, last night, as I'm unable to sleep as a mom, you know, when you don't know what's going on. All you know is that, hey, the doctors will call you. You know, um, you're you're freaking out. So you're distracting yourself. So I thought I'd play the conspiracy theory board game. And that's what I did. And as I was playing it, a conspiracy came up. And I was like, holy crap, I didn't even think of it. Boom. Uh, by the way, I did win that game, right? I did win it. <laughs> I did win it. Uh, there were some things in there that I was like, what? I, I didn't know that. That's like a super conspiracy. But 
what I thought to myself is all those things clicked. I saw those TikToks with these graphs, you know, they show you these graphs of, Hey, you're going to do this and you're going to lose weight. And then it's like a reverse graph where it's like plateau, bounce down, bounce down to your ultimate goal. Right? Well, I want you to think of it the other way. What if it was a reverse graph? So it's like, all right, so here's where we start and we're going to take it up to here and then we're going to pause and then we're going to plateau and then we're going to start again and it's going to go up again until we get to our goal. Well, let's revisit the war that's being played out right now. You're not realizing it, just like many people during that time didn't realize it. They kind of did because they pulled out muskets. They started segregating, but you have to think, how did it start? So here's where we're going to get like a, just an introduction again of how did how they're telling us the rest of the world reacted when we got into a civil war. I want you to pay attention because today your eyes are going to be so wide open. I've been saying this over and over again when they pulled the race card. You know, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is 1919. This is 1917. This is playing out again. But if you take it back to 1819 to 1817. You're going to see it's the same template, only different times. So let's uh, get that mud out of your eyes and give you some sight today so you can understand exactly how all of this is playing out. Because now I believe that people have a bit of eyes to see and ears to hear. and It'll be a lot easier for people to digest the going forward, dismiss the bullshit hearings we're having, right? Distractions. We're distracted within our own nation while the world is crumbling. They did the same thing in the early 1800s. Remember when America got its independence? Remember that? Right? They were pissed. Well, what do you mean you got your independence? We'll show you. 1776. Hello, 1817. But first, let's go to the end. When the war, the U.S. Civil War, was being had, how did the other countries react? Allegedly. Let's go. Surprise you that when the American Civil War broke out, it was pretty big news all over the world. But how did the rest of the world react to the American Civil War? And did they plan to do anything about it? So, before starting, it's important to know that the USA wasn't seen by many of the world's nations at this time as a major player. A rising star for certain, but the USA wasn't seen as being equal to Europe's great powers. Not even Austria. As such, many leaders saw the American Civil War as being a bit of a sideshow to events in Europe at the time, like the wars in the Italian peninsula or that time that the Danish provoked Prussia into a war. Europe's major players sent observers to the USA to see what tactics and technologies were being used, and they were, frankly, not impressed with the quality of war in going on. As for reactions, starting with the USA's neighbour to the south, Mexico, its government's initial reaction was one of awkward silence. It had just finished its own civil war, and due to its previous war with the USA, there was no love lost. 
Not that it had much time to think about it since in late 1861 the French invaded and so they'd spend the rest of the war having their own problems. As for the North, Canada was a series of British imperial domains at this point and as such its foreign policy was determined in London. That said, the people of Canada were firmly in the camp of the Union and many thousands of volunteers went south to fight against the Confederacy. Whereas to the British, the American Civil War was seen as a surprise and one which complicated Britain's foreign policy. You see, Britain imported a lot of cotton from the now Confederate states and given that many parts of the the country financially depended on them, the British were keen to see the war end quickly for economic reasons. Now, this didn't have to be a Union win, and British shipyards produced several warships of the Confederate States. The Confederacy hoped that Britain would recognise its independence, which would likely lead France to do the same, and would strengthen its position diplomatically. Britain never did this though, because it didn't want the United States to invade Canada, wars were expensive, and the overwhelming majority of the British public supported the Union especially when the cause of the war moved from restoring the Union to abolishing slavery. And over the years, many, many thousands of people living in the British Isles, overwhelmingly Irish, went to the US to fight for the Union. Thus, the Confederacy got little help. As for the French, its reaction was the same as the Austrians, that these developments were a welcome surprise. It allowed Franco-Austrian intervention in Mexico so that Maximilian Habsburg could be placed on the throne there to increase their influence in the New World and also to give back the money that Mexico was refusing to pay its creditors. Both nations had unofficial contact with the Confederacy over mutual recognition, yet neither France nor Austria did anything because they knew it would mean war with the United States. Whereas Prussia's reaction to the outbreak of the Civil War wasn't one of shock, but that it brought with it opportunity. Despite being disappointed with the quality of their troops and tactics, Prussia favoured the Union. Prussia was itself a very conservative state, but its leadership knew that acting against the Union would negatively impact its image amongst the very pro-Union German-speaking world, which as you'll know, it was trying to unite, and so by pushing itself as a firm ally of abolitionism and the Union, Prussia's image amongst the German-speaking world could be improved with very little effort. And what about Russia? American leadership was bolstered by a large Russian fleet sailing to their coast, which they hoped would help them blockade the Confederacy, but fun fact, no. The fleet was actually there to stop itself from being caged up in the Baltic Sea in case of war with Britain, as tensions between the two were high. Tsar Alexander II was an outspoken ally of Lincoln and pushed for the total destruction of the Confederacy. And as for the Ottoman reaction, they were overwhelmingly pro-Union. They signed a trade deal with the Union, banned Confederate ships from their waters, and also made a ton of money since they were the second best source of cotton for European markets and their main competitor had just been blockaded. All in all, the world's reaction to the outbreak of the Civil War was one of initial surprise, followed by it asking itself, how can this benefit me? I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for watching with a special thanks Well then, so that's a brief history of how they allegedly reacted. But see, the truth is a lot more different. See, we all learn slowly of how things really occurred. And I believe that many people will be seeing things a, a lot more different after today. And I found a bunch of videos that tell us how the Civil War happened. So I thought we'd share some because many of them just go off with the information that is provided to the people. Remember, it's the victors that write history. Therefore, you have to decipher. You can't waver much from facts. But you can waver enough to obfuscate the core reasons. Now, here's a video I found. It's two parts. How did the American Civil War actually happen? 
I will be interjecting every now and then to clarify some things. Please pay attention and think. Compare that time to our time, and it will really start to make sense. 1819. The newly born United States of America sat in a state of delicate balance. 11, 11. 11 free states, 11 slave states. From the outside looking in, it appeared to be perfect harmony. Equal states, equal representation, equal influence in federal affairs. But this was only from the outside looking in. In reality, there was no focus on balance for the Americans. Instead, all that mattered now was expansion. Manifest destiny. That was the reason why the United States government was hell-bent on snagging more and more territory. Although the phrase wouldn't be coined until the mid-1800s, the belief held by many Americans that it was the nation's destiny to expand westward as far as can be done drove the U.S. to do just that. Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Georgia, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maryland, South Carolina, New Hampshire, Virginia, New York, North Carolina, Rhode Island, Vermont, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, Louisiana, Indiana, Mississippi, Illinois, and Alabama. That was the whole of the United States thus far as of 1819. But only a year later, this would change. In 1818, the Missouri Territory, previously obtained as part of the Louisiana Purchase, began its push for statehood. The following year, the District of Maine would be allowed to break off from Massachusetts and do the same. It didn't take long for this to cause a conundrum for the contemporary U.S., however, because the addition of two more states had the potential to upset the numerical balance between slave states and free states. On the one hand, northerners and pro-abolitionists in Congress argued that the addition of Missouri which seemed to quickly lean toward wanting to become a slave state, would expand slavery and thus bring them further away from their goals. The Southerners, though, were obviously in favor of adding another slave state, and thus argued that any new candidate for statehood should have the right to decide for themselves, just as the first 13 colonies which side on the fence they want to fall on. The debate in both the House of Representatives and the Senate would continue into 1819, at which point Maine was now brought into the mix, as Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House at the time, suggested that Missouri should be added to the Union as a slave state, but that Maine should also be added, contrarily, as a free state. This proposal was subsequently debated into yet another year, when in 1820, the Senate added to the bill, requiring that any other territories north of the 36 degree 30 latitude line that had been agreed upon below Missouri's lower border could only enter the Union as Okay, so let's stop right here. I apologize. I was muted. So as you can see, they drew a line 
What does that remind you of? What does that line remind you of? That line should remind you of the Korean Peninsula. The Korean Peninsula. Do you remember what Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt did? They decided to draw a line. Make the North commie, make the South free. Remember that? Well, if you notice, when they started, they had a lot of what? Hearings. Sounds like a lot of the shit we've been getting for the past decade, right? A hearing upon a hearing upon a hearing. So they were negotiating and saying what each state would be. They said, okay, we're going to be adding states and here's what we're doing. And this is what's happening. I want you to pay attention because you're going to see the war, the civil war and fun fact, just so you know. Well, we'll get to that at some point later on. But as you can see, this has happened before. It may not be so evident, but this has happened before. So here we are where they draw a line, 36 degree. What was it? 45th, right? In Korea. So anyone below 36, slave, anyone above, free, right? Ha. Huh. With a lot of hearings, of course, in the Senate and Congress. Let's debate. Let's talk about it. Hey, you know, Missouri's adding on and Maine's going to be free. We need Missouri to be a slave state so we can keep the balance. Did anyone ask the people of Missouri? And wait a minute. Slaves. See, a lot of us talk about slavery and talk like we know what's going on, but nobody actually peruses the Congress, the Library of Congress. And I've said this for years now. When you have a little bit of time, get on to the Library of Congress. Read the newspapers of those times, all right? People were being seen as commodities. That was normal. Commodities. Right now, you are still a commodity. You're just a little bit more okay with it because you feel like you have rights. See, slaves back in the days, yes, they were sold by their own chiefs by the River Niger, hence the slang word. Let's be fair. The slang word that's being used, the N-word, was actually talking about the River Niger. It was just an accent. We say Niger, but we all know how they used to pronounce it. There we go. So. They all came from the River Niger. They were all sold by their own chiefs. And guess what? What did slaves have? They owned nothing and were happy, right? They were fed. They were clothed. They had families on the plantation. They were making babies and they were working. They were working to eat and they were working to sleep, right? Whatever they were given. And it was all free, you know, like the stuff they're giving us, right? Hey. You're not going to own anything, but don't worry. The government's going to pay you. You're just going to do the job the government gives you. You don't do the job the government gives you. Then you don't get a free house and food. <laughs> Sounds identical to what they're pushing now. Again, 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 pay attention to the splitting of the country. We need to see this so that you can see where we're at. Now, Tori, are you saying that slavery is okay? No, but I'm saying that slavery is not what they tell us. Because right now, we are all slaves. Do you think that the undocumented immigrants are being treated fairly? While many of us are getting pissed off that they get like big fat checks and whatever, that check, $3,000, that is a lot, goes away really soon. 
And all of them are then pretty much slaves. Oh, I lost my job because they hired a lot of Mexicans. Yeah, that Mexican is making $2 an hour. What can he buy with $2 an hour? Absolutely fucking nothing. And that's why we have an increase in criminality, right? I want you guys to pay attention. We have slavery within the U.S. It's just that it's not with whips and chains anymore. The whips and chains are now money. And you're going to see this is why the U.S. Civil War happened to give us funny money. Wait, we needed a central banking system. Wait, we're going to get to that. Because as you see right now, everything that's happening in the United States is distracting us from paying attention to what's happening as it did in the 1800s overseas, right? Which because we weren't paying attention and because Europe started to become stronger and the crown was a little bit pissed. Hey, we dumped so much money into this U.S. Civil War. Now we have this Hitler guy. Let's go make him high. Let's have him start slaughtering so we can show people that go against the global banking system that the United States helped set up is a bad idea. Loaded statement, but wait for it. Now let's continue. Now that we have seen the similarities of what we had done to other countries, you know, and how they just decided for all the people in Missouri that became a state, hey, all of you are going to be a slave state. What if the people in Missouri didn't want to be a slave state? No, it's okay. The big leaders in D.C. that we're debating did it for you. Tough noogies. Free states. With everyone finally in some level of agreement, the Missouri Compromise was signed into law. This triggered a tit-for-tat war of adding one new slave state for every new free state and vice versa starting with Arkansas in 1836, Michigan the next year, and Florida in 1845. And since Florida was a slave state, it was assumed that the next territory to enter the Union and statehood would be another free state. But this became complicated when Texas had a demanding request for the United States. Annex us now. The history of Texas has been a roller coaster thus far, and yet it was only now preparing for its biggest climb yet. Texas, up until recently a part of Mexico after being freed from the grip of the Spaniards, wanted to join a different union, the USA. The Texans' pleas were initially ignored by the US government, which wasn't in much favor of annexing the nearby territory. With growing pressure from Britain for Texas to be an independent nation and America's undeniable thirst for expansion, opinions would soon change nevertheless, and Texas would, in fact, join the Union on December 29, 1845. Here was the issue, though. Texas wanted to be a slave state, which would offset the balance the Northerners had tried so hard to keep. Furthermore, Texas had made claims to territories that put it in direct conflict with its former host of Mexico. And with Texas newly a part of the United States, those presumptuous claims were now the responsibility of the U.S., something that Mexico didn't take lightly. Recently elected President James K. Polk, however, didn't care one bit what the Mexicans thought. Instead, he was an aggressive supporter of Manifest Destiny, and quickly upon his inauguration, hoped to seize the contested territories. Thus, 
Polk at first attempted to purchase his desired lands. He sent American diplomat John Slidell to offer the administration in Mexico City $30 million in exchange for California, New Mexico, and disputed territories along the Texas border. The Mexicans, aghast and unshakably against such an idea, declines to even meet Slidell, which angered Polk. The Manifest Destiny supporter would not be swayed by this rejection, and instead decided that, if diplomacy wouldn't work, he would reel his neighbors into a war he knew the United States would win. As a result, in the early weeks of 1846, the president sent American troops to the Texas border to egg the Mexicans on. And it worked. It only took a few months for Mexican soldiers to fire on the Americans and give Polk the excuse to declare war. With the Mexican-American War underway, debates continued within the United States pertaining to the slave state versus free state debacle. With the free states now outnumbered, the Northerners felt that Polk, being a Southerner himself, was actually committing his land grab in order to further bolster the slave state advantage, which boosted North-to-South tensions. Still, the war raged on, with now famed generals like Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee showing their prowess and adding to their resumes, while the Americans inched closer to Mexico's capital. The city was eventually taken and warfare halted, leading to the long-awaited Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which now forced Mexico to cede not only the contested territories in California, Arizona, Oklahoma, and New Mexico, but also lands of modern-day Nevada, Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming. Now let's stop for a second. All right. So now you see how this happened. But think about it. Mexico had just finished their own war, right? And so they came down and said, all right, we're coming in. How did they do that? We were at our wits end. How did they have the money? Well, here's the untold story. The Crown, the British, funded it. They funded the troops and the Navy that came down to Mexico because they wanted to help get America to be this power slave state. They were not a strong nation at the time. They were funded. And actually, what are the biggest banks? J.P. Morgan Chase, right? So Chase was a th Southerner. He had an idea. Foreign interference masked as local funding. But they didn't have to at that point. No one really was paying attention what was going on. The union was too busy up there to even wonder what they were doing. And they moved in. Sherman was demoted at that time, and he was put in, an in a sanitarium for being insane. Just so you know, General Sherman was actually locked up. You know why? Because he said that there's foreign interference and foreign governments from Europe were funding it. Russia actually came in and said, I want to help you because we can't be doing this. And they are trying to set up this superpower so that the rest of the world can follow through. Pay attention, pay attention. Because now you're going to see everything that we have been going through alive throughout our lifetime, right? For those of you born post 1960, 
you're going to see this and you're going to be like, holy shit, this makes sense. So now we're at the point where they were bitching. Oh, you have half. I have half the polarization doctrine. You keep half, you have the other half, you constantly create like this balance. And then you show why the other side works better than the other. And this is why we went after the Russians after this, because the Russians, if you remember, sold us Alaska for $7 million. And so how are we going to strong arm Mexico that had a ton of military capacity, considering that they had just taken out, and you know, the Spaniards, which were a force to be reckoned with. That's because the Spaniards, the French, and of course the crown helped. It was fun for them. They thought this is it. We create enough division. We create enough chaos and we do the land grab and we create a central banking system. Tori, those are not connected. Bear with me. Polk had gotten his way and more, but it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. New land meant more to fight over back home. Over the next few years, Iowa, Wisconsin, and California would all give their bids for statehood, eventually bringing about the Compromise of 1850. This series of bills would address a multitude of things, though mostly focused on the institution of slavery within the Union. In short, it determines that California would join the Union as a free state, but was required to send one pro-slavery senator to the Senate in order to maintain the readjusted balance. From now on, however, slave or free states from the remaining territories gained from Mexico would be decided as such by popular sovereignty. This went all right at first, as would the admission to statehood of Minnesota in 1858 and Oregon in 1859. But predictably, there was simultaneously another reason for tensions to rise. As part of the new establishment of popular sovereignty, Senator Stephen Douglas suggested applying the strategy to a proposed newly organized Nebraska territory that would at once repeal the Missouri Compromise slave state border and split the Nebraska territory in two. Now, despite a struggle to actually pass the new bill that would become known as the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the populations of both territories were left to vote on whether they wished to permit slavery or not. The consequence of this, and maybe unpredictably so, was that settlers began flooding to both Nebraska and Kansas, settlers from both sides of the slavery debate. This slippery slope ushered in a tragic era known as Bleeding Kansas, which would eventually see Kansas enter the Union in 1861, surprisingly. So, how did they all move? Think about it for a second. Back in the day, how did they move? For those of you that watch Outlander, you know, what a hot... You know what? I think I watch it for like the soft, hot scenes with the, you know, Jamie the Scott... I mean, men looking fantastic in skirts, right? But how did they move? They were granted land or money from their governors. So why would people suddenly migrate there? I mean, why would people from Minnesota and Iowa come down southwest, right? Because they were funded to. Pay attention. People in Texas were funding. So they were sending people with caravans to invade that so they can sit. Pay attention. Pay attention. Because now... 
you're going to understand what exactly is happening. They were just giving them parcels of land, even though it wasn't theirs, and they would just sit there and say, hey, this is it. Done. Pay attention. It almost sounds like the mass migration we're seeing now. Where are they going? <laughs> That's right. That's right. We're all paying attention now. Let's go. As a free state, this would be the final state admitted to the Union before the start of the Civil War. Why did things get to this point? How could such a young nation have fallen into battle with itself so fast? Why were the North and South so opposed to each other? The issue of slavery, and thus the North versus South contention, can be blamed on vastly different cultural aspects of the two halves of America. For the North, slavery was not really needed, as the upper states had quickly become industrialized and thus didn't have to rely on as much manpower. This gave northern citizens the opportunity to unbiasedly consider the moral standing of the entire institution of slavery, prompting many to call it into question. Supported by the ideas of European immigrants who had come from nations that had already outlawed slavery, these northerners began to turn toward abolitionism. This was in total opposition to their fellow Americans down south, of course. But this was because the south had failed to industrialize as the north had. Now, do you know who helped the north industrialize? It was the Russians. The Russians actually did it. So while all of this was happening in the United States, the Russians had started to move their ships coming through the Arctic and everything. And everyone thought that the Russians were going there for war or presenting. Actually, they were just trying to get the fuck out. I think the previous video mentioned that. But they actually tried to get out. And this is why they gave Alaska over. They started to provide. This is why Russia walled themselves. You know, they were extremely industrialized. This is why the USSR was such a big power, right? Because they realized everyone was about themselves. And they were like, nah, man, we're looking after Russia. Right. So they were actually assisting the northerners in learning how to industrialize and keep to themselves. The South, on the other hand, was being a oh, shit ton of money was coming in a ton of it, a ton of it, a ton of it. And that was coming in from the crown for an interference again, because, you know, they had only just filed the declaration 50 years prior to all this shit happened. Actually, within 30 years. And I've said this since the, the minute they signed it while the ink was wet. They were already plotting and they decided, well, wait a minute, we're, we're creating economies. Money is a thing. We need to make money more like this. And you're going to see that. I'm going to show you that. But I want you guys to understand the few little facts here. Even though most of this is what they wrote as history, I want you to take the 40,000 foot view and apply it. You have to remember how we have states within our nation right now that are like the slave states, the ones that are pushing to let criminals out, the ones that are saying you will own nothing and love it, the ones that are pushing, you know, these weird agendas and, 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 and demanding people to do things like the song said, this war is about dominion over our bodies. And I think we've lost that a long, long time ago. We are now realizing it. This is why this is the precipice. Right. So if you pay attention to history and if you actually look back, everything makes sense.
and I'm surprised that I haven't had the show, but I guess maybe playing that game yesterday tickled my brain and said, wait a minute, I've never shown the comparison and, and, and it's not, and it's my fault. I should have done that earlier on, but I guess maybe now everyone has ears to hear and eyes to see. So again, what did they do? They took on the agenda of the Russians and started to industrialize. They had a lot more and they were manufacturing. Here's the thing. The British allowed that shit to happen because they knew they were dumping a lot of money in the South right? Because they were trading with the Americans because of the wars that were happening in Europe. Remember, the Ottoman Empire had everything, right? They were busy trying to buffer out the Ottoman Empire. They were busy trying to grab land and territory. They were busy formulating the Paris Accord in 1868. They were busy setting up NATO and the plan. They were busy organizing. They knew that in Europe, the monetary systems were of all economies, right? So what they did was, even though they had war there and there was a lot going on in Europe during that time, right? With all the nations there, borders being redrawn, okay? They strategically had planned out World War One, World War II, and World War Three, And that is what they were doing. But while dumping money to the United States. Now, as you can see, the northern states had taken on the idea that Russia had taken on, that China had taken on during that time, which is to industrialize and focus on their own people. And that is exactly what the North did. The crown allowed it to happen because that increased their trade and allowed them to be able to get products and innovative things, right, shipped to them while there was war in Europe and everyone else was starving. They were doing just fine because they were still trading with the United States. They were like, yeah, yeah, we love you. We're so sorry all this shit is happening with the war and stuff while they were funding it. The Canadians, on the other hand, were like, nah, man, it needs to be free. It needs to be free. And the Brits were like, yeah, really? Well, we're coming in with the French and we're going to show you. You're going to shut the fuck up and you're going to listen to what we have to say because you need to be quiet. Pay attention. So this, you're going to see just how evil has a plan and they trust their plan. Instead, Southerners were more economically dependent on free labor for plantations and the like, which meant that their personal finances and way of life could be entirely affected by the banning of slavery, thus making it hard for a Southerner to even give the moral aspect a second thought, though some did and still supported the institution. And with the invention of the cotton gin, the matter only became more solidified. The South needed slavery. The problem then arose as the North wondered if Southerners wanted to extend slavery even further, whereas the latter worried that the former was going to take the slaves they already had. Both, ironically, would be right. The North and South were miles away from reconciling this difference. Debatably, there was also the issue of federal versus state rights, although this factor is hard to blame entirely. Not only did the later formed Confederacy have a shockingly large bureaucratic system for a collection of states who were opposed to overbearing federal governments, but there had also been previous opportunities, such as during the nullification crisis a few decades prior, for the South to go to war with the North, or at least raise more of a ruckus if state rights were the core issue. Still, 
It is true that many people at the time, particularly in the South, had more loyalty to their state than country as a whole. And state versus federal disconnect likely played somewhat of a role in tensions, even if second fiddle to the slavery argument. The fanning of the flames, however, came from a string of amplifying events. The Fugitive Slave Act, for example, had been part of the Compromise of 1850 and galvanized abolitionists as it had made the federal government responsible for finding, returning, and penalizing escaped slaves and anyone who aided them, even if they made it to a free state. With the Northerners deeply troubled by this development, politically active citizens of the upper United States would soon form their own opposition party to the pro-slavery Democrats, the Republican Party. This new entity would also become host to the controversial Abraham Lincoln shortly after its birth. Lincoln had previously served in the U.S. House of Representatives in 1846 before joining the Republicans and running for Senate a decade later. Although he lost the Senate race to Stephen Douglas, the series of speeches and debates that preceded the election had both catapulted him to popularity in the North while earning him a fair share of enemies in the South. His mere existence as a political entity thus stirred the pot and increased tensions. But then, so did bleeding Kansas. Guerrilla warfare is one way that this period from 1855 through 1859 has been described. While Nebraska was somewhat hit by the flood of both pro- and anti-slavery settlers hoping to sway the coming vote, it was Kansas that was truly beaten. Pro-slavery residents of neighboring states used legal loopholes to cross the border and vote in Kansas's territorial elections, setting off a domino effect that would lead to a split government and all-out violence. Historians estimate that anywhere from 50 to 200 Americans died as a consequence in the four-year span, something akin to pouring a couple of gallons of gasoline on the growing fire, burning towards civil war. Charles Sumner's congressional speech about Kansas would further heighten the situation. A Republican Northerner, Sumner had actually memorized every last word in his impassioned speech titled The Crime Against Kansas, in which he lambasted the entire institution of slavery and even took direct jabs at pro-slavery senators. This instance serves as a clear example of the current level of tensions in the Union and Congress, as South Carolina Representatives Preston Brooks and Lawrence Keat reacted to the damning speech by physically assaulting Charles Sumner with a cane, beating him so severely that he would need three full years of leave to recover. And this was only a year before one of the most controversial and anger-fueling incidents of the entire lead-up to the Civil War. It was the Dred Scott case that soon put the move toward all-out military conflict between the North and South into hyperdrive. The case revolved around a slave since birth by the name of Dred Scott. After the death of his original owner in 1832, Scott had been purchased by a man named John Emerson, and upon his death, Scott and his family would then be transferred to the ownership of Emerson's wife, Irene. 
Previously, Scott and his family have been brought along for travels across multiple free states and territories, although at no point had they attempted to run or sue for their freedom. Instead, once Irene took ownership, Scott attempted to buy their freedom off her. Irene was obstinate and insisted on keeping her slaves around, which led Dredd and his wife Harriet to, finally, go the route of a lawsuit. They each filed on the basis of two Missouri statutes, as they were currently living with Irene in St. Louis. One stated that any slave taken to a free state would thus be free and could not be returned to enslavement even if they left the free state, while the other allowed for anyone to file a suit for wrongful enslavement. The Scott couple was given logistical support from abolitionists, fellow churchgoers, and ironically, the family of their previous owner. This allowed them to actually take their case to court, which was first shot down in 1847 on a technicality, but was given the option of a retrial. The next trial would come in January of 1850, and this time, the Scots actually won their freedom. Irene, however, quickly appealed the decision to the Missouri Supreme Court. Two years later, the court sided once more with Irene, thus re-enslaving the Scott family. Unwilling to give up now, Scott filed a federal lawsuit with the United States Circuit Court for the District of Missouri the following year. Before the case could be decided upon again, Irene would transfer the Scots over to her brother, John Sanford, hence the name of the new case, Dred Scott versus Sanford. In the spring of 1854, the federal court ruled in favor of Sanford, thus prompting Scott to appeal yet again now to the United States Supreme Court. This final trial would start on February 11, 1856, with a growing list of abolitionist and even politician supporters in favor of the Scots. Nevertheless, less than a month later, a decision was made. And, and before we hear that decision, let's think about it for a second. They were in court for over 20 years, right? That's how long it took. But then you have to think, they were slaves and they were filing a lawsuit. If they were slaves and being beaten, how were they allowed to file a lawsuit? Think about it for a second. Where would they get the money if they were treated so terribly? Why did they file a lawsuit? I want you guys to start putting your thinking caps on because this is history and they're telling you, yes, yes, it's true that when you see a human as a commodity, you whip them like an ox, right? That's what they did. That is exactly what they did. But slaves were able to file lawsuits, right? And lawfare actually proves to change things, of course, as you can see. Every little thing matters. But I want people to be paying attention to the facts of the matters at hand. And they were there pro se, right? They didn't have lawyers. They went pro se, right? The, the, the slave owner had lawyers. They were pro se and churches and NGOs <laughs> were funding it because there were always people that were, no, 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 we need to do it different. Ah, what if I told you that this dichotomy, this North and South thing was all planned to bring on a monetary system? You're going to stop because it's exactly what they're doing now. Oh, did, did we mention that at the turn of the century, everyone was getting sick in Europe, right? They deployed that whole sickness thing in Europe, right? If you remember correctly, huh, huh, huh? 
Huh? How else were they going to take down the Ottomans? Right? Huh? What? They got them sick. They had like what? Pandemics all over Europe at the beginning of the 1800s. That couldn't work in the United States because they needed someone to deploy the currency that this new order of really smart people of royals, right? The Spaniards, the French, like remember Macron is a co-prince, right? Uh, the British, right? Here it is. Here's where the bankers come in and hence why Hitler was born and hence why they were like, uh-oh, we can't have that happening. Let's quickly get him on drugs. Let's quickly shift Hitler to become a mass murderer. Let's send our own people next to him. Who can we buy loyalty from? Who can we buy loyalty from? And here we come. Here we come. Pay attention. So they went to the Supreme Court. And now what? Now what happens? Hmm. Let's see. What happens now? Let's just give it a couple seconds rewind. Let's go. It's Supreme Court. This final trial would start on February 11th, 1856, with a growing list of abolitionist and even politician supporters in favor of the Scots. Nevertheless, less than a month later, a decision was made. And once more, Dred Scott had lost. And not only this, but the judge most notably credited for the final ruling asserted that no African-American even had the right to sue for anything in the federal court because they lacked the ability to be United States citizens. While the Scots would already have their freedom by now thanks to Irene's new abolitionist husband and the help of their old owner's family, the case itself was the final straw for many abolitionists. John Brown had now gone down in history as one of America's most infamous abolitionists, and on October 16, 1859, he would prove exactly why. He warned an army watchman as he and a group of fellow abolitionists launched what would be an ambitious but ultimately failed raid on Harper's Ferry. After taking several hostages from the town and capturing the U.S. armory and arsenal, the raiders would be stalled by a local militia as General Robert E. Lee made his way into the town to wrap things up. Brown and his men had aimed to spark a local slave rebellion, but instead, many of the raiders were killed once Lee and his marines arrived, with Brown himself being captured and later hanged for his acts of treason against the state of Virginia. John Brown had failed, and he had died. But his animosity for the South was shared by far too many for the tide to be turned by this point. With the election of anti-slavery northerner Abraham Lincoln in 1860 to the presidency, enough was enough. Immediately after the future emancipator was elected to office, the South Carolina General Assembly called for a convention to consider secession. Much to the pleasure of the locals, South Carolina thus voted unanimously to leave the United States of America. Days later, they issued a document justifying their decision to secede and making one dramatically important point in the process. A geographical line has been drawn across the Union. And it truly had. Ten more southern states would follow suit and join the newly founded Confederate States of America, led by their chosen president, Jefferson Davis. 
The Union president, Abraham Lincoln, refused to recognize the Confederacy as legitimate, insisting that he wished to take no one's slaves and simply wanted to keep the Union together. This meant nil to the Southerners, who were rapidly attempting to create a unified nation out of a handful of states who had all made a big fuss about state autonomy. And not just that, but the South was at a major disadvantage for the impending war. Precise numbers are debated, but it can be estimated that at the time of the mass secession and formation of the Confederacy, the Union boasted a population of roughly 22 million in comparison to the South's approximate 9 million. Of those numbers, the Union would eventually enlist around 2 million soldiers, whilst the Confederates would only tally about 900,000. Furthermore, the Northerners had something close to 20,000 miles worth of railroads, which was double what the Confederate states could claim, thus giving the Union a better advantage for moving troops and supplies in wartime. And while it's often argued that the Confederate generals, such as Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, James Longstreet, Nathan Bedford Forrest, and Patrick Cleburne gave the South a tactical military edge on their upstairs neighbors, the North was surely ahead in other ways, like the fact that they produced around 90% of goods in the former United States at the time. But still, the Union was losing its grip on the South. It only had limited holdings left in Confederate states, and it was about to lose another. Fort Sumter was the last Union stronghold in South Carolina, and strong is being generous. It was outmanned and undersupplied, to say the least, and with Southerners now cracking down on Union property within their borders, it was surrounded. The Confederates attempted to force the little remaining Union forces at the fort to surrender. The latter refused, and the Confederates opened fire. The Civil War had begun. Well, our Civil War started a long time ago. And while many of us claim, oh no, there's, there's no, um, no, it happened. It totally happened. And, you know, we try to tell ourselves that we won, but we didn't. It was exactly what they wanted. It was exactly what they wanted. You know how I'm going to show you this? I'm going to show you about the Peloponnesian War. And, you know, I derived from the Peloponnese. Actually, my DNA is 95% Peloponnesian. And maybe when you see it on the foreign nation, how it happened eons ago, you know, we're talking 5th century BC. Maybe if you see the dynamics, you'll see it's the same damn plan. Where at this time, instead of it being the crown, it's the Ottoman Persian Empire. This will help. Sometimes, looking at different ones, and then we'll get back. We'll help you make more sense of it. Uh, the Peloponnesian War was when Athens had to face the Spartans. And you know, that's where the Spartans are from, the Peloponnese. Um, actually, I'll, I'll actually send a screenshot. My DNA says I'm 95% Peloponnesian. And the 4% Balkan, which is whatever. And 1% unknown. So this kind of hits home. Same plan. Done over time. Like the Persians had. 
Please pay attention. And Athens, the latter had been growing tremendously in strength and influence. A regional military alliance was also being formed, known as the Delian League, which was essentially controlled by Athens. With upwards of 300 members at its peak, the Delian League paid regular tribute to Athens in exchange for military cooperation and protection against external threats in a system that would more or less become a de facto Athenian Empire. Sparta, watching from afar, was notably displeased by this growing development. On the one hand, the concept of Athens' influence and authority increasing so rapidly rivaled and threatened the desired expansion of the Spartans. Contrarily, though, Sparta was part of its own military alliance, coins the Peloponnesian League, which loosely resembled the rival Delian League. This evidently proved to be more and more problematic, as not only were the hegemony of Sparta and Athens themselves growing nearer and nearer to each other, but now so were the neighboring coalitions. And it is these military friendships that first brought the dominant city-states face to face. The relationship between Athens and Sparta was already rocky by the time war broke out between their neighbors in Megara and Corinth. Since both of these city-states were allied with Sparta, Athens jumped at the chance to intervene and steal a friend away from their rival. As a result, the Athenians managed to negotiate a new alliance with Megara, leaving Sparta to side solely with the loyal Corinth. The inevitable entrance of Sparta into the conflict marks what would be known as the first phase of the Peloponnesian War. The off-and-on clashes lasted for 15 years before peace could be made. By the end of it, Athens and Sparta had officially recognized each other's spheres of influence and alliances, and the Thirty Years' Peace Treaty was signed, intended to prevent further warfare for another three decades. But alas, the peace collapsed only six years later. Over the half-decade of the treaty's relevance, Greece was far from stable. By 440 BC, Athens was already facing a revolt from one of its allies, Samos, which quickly put the thought into Sparta's mind of breaking the agreement early on. When the Spartans gathered their allies for a congress to discuss any type of intervention into the current Athenian turmoil, Sparta's most outspoken ally, Corinth, was strongly against reigniting war with the people they had just made peace with. Consequently, the Peloponnesian League decided to keep to the treaty and stay out of the conflict. Now, I thought I'd give you a little bit of a fun fact. I think I posted this um, ages ago. But did you know that when they decided to declare war, and just so you guys know, at that point, the Greek Empire was kind of shuffling itself around. And the Persians and the uh, Nordics or the Anglitarians, whatever, started to create division within Greece because it was a central point for access to Africa and the Far East. Now, Corinth, right, which is my, my, um, Majority of my family, this is where my almond groves were torched last week. Uh, well, they're not mine. <laughs> they're, they're passed on to my children that has been in my family for eons. Well, Corinth had a way of telling each other who was on the team, and this was done through coins. 
and the way they stamped it was the cough, the, the, the letter Q. So it was stamped with the Pegasus that represented Corinth, and on the back, it would be stamped with a quaff, a Q. And this is how they communicated that they were on Team Freedom and Independent Greece. So uh, I wanted to make note of that because they felt that Athens was going into the Persian Empire and allowing it, but also being extremely influenced by the Roman Empire. And that's why they had uh, the stronghold, which is over here from the Italian Empire. Over there, we had Malta that was on the side of freedom, which is here, but you'll see that later. So you'll see they have the stronghold here. These were more the Anglitarians. These were more of the um, Anglitarians too, like the Anglo-Saxons and whatnot. And here was the um, Italian, the Roman Empire um, influence flanking them. So they would take hold here in order to buffer that, even though they had Malta there. So here we go. And this would prove to be a wise decision, as Corinth soon faced a threat from their own rebellious colony, Corsaira, which had previously been unaligned to either side, but now sought friendship with Athens. This led Athens and Corinth to the brink of war, but it would instead be another colony of Corinth and ally of Athens that officially threw out the Thirty Years' Peace. Potidaea, a Corinthian colony aligned with Athens, was ordered by the latter to remove its fortifications while dismissing all magistrates from Corinth and sending hostages to Athens. The Corinthians were taken aback and deeply angered by this, and sent their own instructions to the colony, promising that if Potidaea revolted against Athens, Corinth would have their back. When the colony did just that, the Battle of Potidaea broke out, with Corinth sending undercover contingents into Potidaea to fight off the Athenians for their new ally. Yet, somehow, despite this being a direct violation of the prior peace agreement, this was not the final straw for Athens nor Sparta. Alternatively, it was what Athens did next that pushed the growing tensions over the edge. By 432 BC, Athens, in the eyes of Sparta, was on a power trip. The Delian League figurehead issued a decree that more or less put a damning trade embargo on Megara, which had since rebuilt their alliance with Sparta as opposed to Athens. Sparta's demands for Athens to repeal these Megaran decrees went unobeyed, and that same year, Corinth requested that Sparta bring together another congress of the Peloponnesian League so the coalition could discuss their increasing displeasure with the actions of Athens. Sparta agreed and did just that. Now, for those of you that have watched the movie The 300, who were the Spartans fighting? The Persians. So, does that mean that the Greeks of Athens sided with the Persians? Pegasus as I said, represents Corinth. Now, Corinth had that secret coin that I told you about. This is how they sent clandestine undercover people. I've said that many times, that things just repeat themselves. So it's important that we go to the time before Christ so you can see all of this play out. So what was the difference between Athens and Sparta or the Peloponnese? So during the Greek empire, 
which was pretty prevalent, but it's not being highlighted here. The Greek empire decided to go super liberal. They had like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It was terrible. They had slaves. Uh, they, they, even though they had great philosophy, right? They were very progressive and liberal. Whereas the rest of the Greeks of the Peloponnese were like, no, nah, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. You know, we're staying to our roots. We're going to be focusing on Greece and our people. We like family values. And don't forget, the Peloponnese were quite progressive themselves. Women were warriors. They were elevated to like war warrior status. They were actually quite level-minded and conservative. They would do things that we all say are the foundations of this nation. Treat people fairly, no murder, right? It's not the Bible translation that says thou shall not kill. Completely wrong. It was in Aramaic. And the word kill that they tell you is actually murder, right? Not kill, murder. Because you can accidentally kill someone. You can kill someone in defense. It's thou shall not murder. But anyway, having said that, the 300 that you've watched fought the Persians. So I want you to put your thinking caps on and see how infiltration and funding wars works. Sometimes going far back enough, you can see the similarities before we jump back to the Civil War. When the meeting began, the League was additionally joined by a delegation from Athens, which had apparently invited themselves. This made for a tense and highly heated gathering, but the result would still be clear. Athens had broken the peace, and that means war. The first leg of this conflict would become known as the Arcadamian War, and officially began in 431 BC. This was a bit of an unusual war, though, and it played out somewhat oddly. On one hand, the Athenians had an acceptable land army, but a remarkable naval fleet, giving them the clear advantage by sea, and hence their strategy being focused on the use of this fleet. On the flip side, the Spartans had a land army that was widely known, respected, and rightfully feared. Their allies were additionally stronger by lands than sea, which meant that Sparta intended to fight this war on land. As a result, the Spartans did exactly that, and swiftly captured Attica, which they occupied off and on while the Athenians took to the sea. With its superior navy, Athens was just as quick to take the upper hand on the water, including the Battle of Nopactus in 430 BC. But only a year into the warfare, a new enemy brought the clash to a screeching halt. The plague had hit the Athenians. With tens of thousands succumbing to the rapidly spreading disease, the Athenian forces were drastically reduced, and their allies were suddenly afraid to come to their aid out of fear of catching the plague themselves. Even the Spartans were unwilling to risk such a disease and withdrew from Attica before it could ravage their own troops or citizens. With the war on pause and Athens' leading general Pericles deceased from the plague, Athens decided it was time to turn to a more offensive strategy and, as soon as possible, re-sparked their naval hits on the Peloponnese. 
The war would continue, with Athens seeming to maintain the advantage, even pressuring a 300-strong Spartan force into surrendering in a move that shattered the Spartan image of immortality and invincibility. Despite being demoralized and possibly the underdog by now, Sparta wasted no time and launched their own invasion of Amphipolis, a colony of Athens which ended in the Spartan seizure of the territory. By 421 BC, though, both sides were ready to attempt another period of peace. A new treaty was signed, the Peace of Nicias, which was able to bring a new six-year span of relative stability, but complete peace was not managed for Sparta. Instead, as certain members of the Peloponnesian League tried to branch off and create their own democratic coalition despite strong pushback from Sparta, the armed conflict shifted from Sparta vis Athens to Sparta vis their own neighbors and former allies. This war would not last long, though, and after the amped-up Battle of Mantinea, where the Tegean next-door neighbors to Sparta and their allies successfully fought off an invasion from the newfound coalition led by Argus, the side of Sparta proved victorious. Many members of the new alliance turned back to the Peloponnesian League as Argus's coalition now dissolved, and Sparta yet again survived a potential threat to its homeland. War with Athens did not take long to reignite, nevertheless. In 415 BC, Athens had received a request for help from their fellow Ionian allies in Sicily, who were currently being targeted by Syracuse, a city made up of the same ethnic group as Sparta. When Athens sent off an expedition under Alcibiades, who was currently under great scrutiny after being accused of religious crimes back home, the following chain of events would drag Sparta right back to a face-off with the Athenians. Once Alcibiades arrived in Sicily, he was ordered to return to Athens to stand trial. Maintaining his innocence and fearing a rigged trial, the general refused to return home and stunningly went so far as to defect to Sparta. He now informs the Spartans of Athens' presence in Sicily and the possibility of the Athenians conquering all of Sicily before moving on throughout Italy and Carthage. Despite this proving unlikely, as Syracuse quickly began to abuse the Athenian forces in battle after battle, the Peloponnesian League, including Sparta, set off for Sicily themselves. Backing Syracuse and joining the utter pummeling of the Athenians, the Peloponnesian League at long last took the upper hand in their ongoing contest with Athens. Nevertheless, the war carried on until 405 BC. It was thanks to the monetary and supply support that, ironically, the Persian Empire sent to the Spartans that would allow the latter to build a naval force powerful enough to once and for all overcome the Athenian navy so blatantly that Athens had no choice but to surrender to Sparta. This was Now, it's 2023. What is the war that's being fought in Turkey and Greece for so long? You see those, uh, these uh, blue islands, let me point to them right here. It's the six miles that they keep fighting. Of course, the Persians would fund the Spartans to take out the Athenians because they had hold of this area, right? Which is now Turkey, except for some islands like Mytilene, 
right? Carpathus and other islands. But they funded them to take them out so they could take that territory back. I hope people are paying attention. This is before Christ. Yeah, you just pay attention. You see all this blue stuff right here? This is still being fought today, right? This area right here is still being fought today. So they funded them, the Persians that had the standoff with the Spartans, they funded them to take out their enemies, well, to take the Athenians out so they could take that territory. Results sent a shockwave through all of Greece. The Delian League was gone. Athens was no longer immortal on the seas, and Sparta was now the most powerful city-state in all of Greece. With Athens under strict rules and tribute to Sparta, and the latter soaking in their newfound supremacy, the entire region had changed, whether for the better or worse. Sparta had managed to resolve the main issue that had caused the war to begin with, Athens' expanding dominance. But many believe that this was the end of the Golden Age for Greece, as shortly after the miraculous Spartan success, the Persians would take control of Sparta's imperial possessions, and Philip II of Macedon would later finish off the job of putting out Sparta's once bright flame of strength. So, although Sparta may have won the battle, and it seems Persia and Macedon won the war, the real loser in it all may just be ancient Greece as a whole. And that is how you take out an empire. You help them take themselves out. Now let's go back to how did the Confederates defeat the Union in 1861? Let's take a look at that, because that'll give you even more. See, oh, when we get into the financing, you'll see, but it's it's quite disheartening how history has been skewed to not provide accurate information, or I would say in context. Now, as you can see, the battle that the, Pelop the Peloponnesian Wars that happened were all about that. Extreme progressiveness and more extreme nationalism. See, they were so, they had gotten so extreme rather than remain to their centrist values, that they were easily swayed by monetary intervention. Oh, thanks, Turkey, because they didn't see that coming. Of course they did. But their leaders at that point were so blinded, they decided, well, this is the best way we win. We just want to win. This is a problem that we see repeating, 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 and you'll see it here. Because we never won any war. We played the game, so we lost. Here we go. Our independence. Fort Sumter failed to be evacuated by the Confederate deadline. 6,000 Southerners now had Charleston Harbor surrounded. Cannon and mortar stared down the fort. At 4.30 a.m. on April 12, 1861, a gunner at Fort Johnson set off a 10-inch mortar sending the explosive into the early morning skies above Fort Sumter, the detonation lighting up the blue and telling all those around one thing. The Civil War had begun. 
As the men of Fort Sumter scurried to prepare, local citizens clambered to rooftops in hopes of watching the monumental battle occur. One by one, the Confederates began firing upon the Union-held fort until every available cannon and mortar across the harbor was bombarding Sumter. The scarcely staffed Union garrison fired back as best they could with the little manpower and cartridges they had, but not much could be done. The Confederates were unrelenting. The attack would continue into the following day, at one point setting the roof of the fort ablaze, but alas, its defenders refused to come out still. So impressed by the stubborn valor of their foes, the Confederates even began to cheer for each shot fired from the fort. But this was far from enough to stop the South. In fact, the Confederates were becoming increasingly more aggressive. In the early afternoon of April 13th, the flagpole holding up the Union flag of Fort Sumter was hit and broken. This moment of foreshadowing was followed by a chaotic period of diplomatic negotiations, which would finally find success. It was agreed that the Union troops would, after all, evacuate. Firing a salute to their makeshift tattered flag, they were off, and the Confederates had won the first battle of the Civil War. As a result of the Battle of Fort Sumter and the undeniable start of what would be a long and gruesome bloody domestic war, President of the Union, Abraham Lincoln, put out a call on April 15th for 75,000 militia volunteers to stop what he referred to as an illegitimate rebellion. This act would trigger the remaining Confederate states-to-be to officially leave the Union, and Lincoln would double down by calling for an additional 40,000 men to serve for a three-year span. Jefferson Davis, leader of the Confederate states, countered with a call for an additional 100,000 militiamen of his own, proposing a 12-month service. At this point in time, neither side wanted the war to last long. In fact, some in the South had actually hoped that the attack on Fort Sumter would scare the Union into diplomacy instead of an armed conflict. The Confederates knew they were greatly outnumbered and were smart enough to recognize the obstacles they'd need to overcome to beat the North. However, they weren't the only ones with concerning weaknesses. Over in the Union, Many of Lincoln's cabinet and his own generals questioned his ability to lead the nation through a war. And yet, Lincoln's generals themselves were their own problem. Many had grown old or even unhealthy and nearly incapable altogether, leaving the president with some difficulty when it came to choosing who would lead his armies throughout the conflict. Nevertheless, armies needed to be led and plans needed to be made. And as for what the North had in store for the South, one must only look at the Union's Anaconda Plan. Lieutenant General Winfield Scott was the man responsible for providing this strategy. While it was only partially used in technicality, by the end of the war, it seemed that Scott had rather precisely predicted the approach of his nation's tactics. It was his idea that the Union should focus on a strong defense of D.C., an unforgiving blockade of the South from the Atlantic and Gulf coasts, and a brutal land and sea attack along the Mississippi River to sever the Confederates in two. Named for its attempt to strangle the South into submission, the Anaconda Plan seemed doable. 
but the strategy on paper would be shelved early into the war due to political pressure Lincoln hoped to ease. By the end of May, nevertheless, the Union had already crossed the Potomac and took hold of Arlington Heights. This set off the start of intermittent skirmishes that would carry on throughout the war between each of the major battles, with the first of the latter on Virginian soil, coming in early June at the Battle of Big Bethel. The forces of the Confederates and the United States met at the village of Big Bethel on June 10, 1861. The North had hoped to create a buffer for themselves around Fort Monroe, one of the last Union strongholds in the area. This would ultimately fail, however, leading to another Confederate victory and an unexpected direction that this war seemed to be going in. The incapacity of Lincoln's military leaders was showing already, and the Confederates had starkly the opposite when it came to their generals. In a unique win for the Union, however, the Wheeling Conventions around this time resulted in the northwestern counties of Virginia voting to break free from their current state and begin the process of forming the new state of West Virginia, which would ally with the North. With momentums and their sails now, the Union decided it was time to begin the main objective, take Richmond and end the war once and for all. As General Irvin McDowell began the march with his 35,000 men, the largest field army yet gathered on the continent, cheering civilians began to follow the troops with picnic baskets and unwavering excitement. They, the Northerners, believed that their men were marching into an assured victory that would collapse the Confederacy and rebuild their nation. What happened instead was the Battle of Bull Run. McDowell's troops were made up almost entirely of men who had responded to the call to arms by President Lincoln following the assault on Fort Sumter, meaning that they lacked experience or even understanding of what they were about to face. Nevertheless, McDowell was leading them to seize a crucial railroad junction at Manassas, just near the Bull Run stream that stood in their way. It was here that the Confederate forces sat waiting to defend, however, which all played into McDowell's plan. The goal was to use his three columns to confront the Confederate force in the front and right flank to eventually push them into abandoning the railroad junction. As the Union Army was approaching, the Confederate Army of the Potomac, under the command of General Pierre G.T. Beauregard, requested aid from Richmond, a request that was intended to be answered with reinforcement by the Army of Shenandoah under General Joseph E. Johnston. Johnston, though, was being stalled by the Union force of 18,000 men under Major General Robert Patterson. Patterson was tasked with preventing the Army of Shenandoah from reaching Bull Run. Meanwhile, McDowell was getting closer and closer to Beauregard's defenses. As they inched near, McDowell sent roughly 5,000 of his men with Brigadier General Theodore Runyon to guard the rear, while another division under Brigadier General Daniel Tyler was dispatched to try and hit the Confederate right flank. This resulted in a small-scale clash between Daniel's force and the Confederates at Blackburn's Ford, where the Northerners were beaten back. Over with Patterson, 
the Union troops weren't doing much better either. Despite having sent a telegraph to DC saying, I have succeeded in accordance with the wishes of the General-in-Chief in keeping General Johnston's forces at Winchester, he hadn't. Instead, when Johnston had received word of Beauregard's situation, he utilized a cavalry screen to give Patterson the slip and leave Winchester. This was bad news for McDowell, who currently outnumbered the Confederate force he faced by more than 10,000. If Johnston could make it to Bull Run before the battle was over, which the Union generals soon heard was quite the possibility in spite of Patterson's confidence otherwise, this would change drastically. Unfortunately for McDowell, the change did happen. The clash began on the morning of July 21, 1861. McDowell sent two divisions from Centerville towards Sudley Springs in hopes of ambushing the Confederate left flank. At the same time, another division was sent as a distraction to the Stone Bridge, intending to deceive the Southerners. This plan seemed doable in theory, but in reality, inexperienced men and poor execution meant I wanted to point something out. Have you noticed how the Union uh, is blue and that the slave owners are red <laughs> when it was the Democrats? I just wanted to point it out. The victors always write the story, right? The Union soldiers were fumbling the ball. Colonel Nathan Evans of the Confederates defending the bridge was able to determine that the attack on his force was only a distraction and swiftly reacted, racing with the main fragment of his troops to Matthews Hill to meet up with the real Union attack. While he was unable to stop McDowell due to his inferior numbers, Evans successfully stalled the Northerners while reinforcements came his way, although these reinforcements would soon collapse under Union pressure. The Confederate defense was failing, and its men were on the run. There stands Jackson like a stone wall. Rally behinds the Virginians, General Bernard B. shouted to his beaten down and nearly deserting men. As Johnston and Beauregard arrived at Henry House Hill, the Union troops had hesitated and were reorganizing their advance, giving the Southerners time to do the same. After an hour, the battle was back on, and the tide began to notably change. Confederate forces were able to capture Union artillery guns, and the Northern offensive was falling apart. The rebel yell rang out as the Union troops were one by one pushed off of Henry House Hill. By 4 p.m., the Confederates had won. After losing their position, the Northerners began what would, at first, be an organized retreat. Within the hour, however, any form of organization had gone out the window. The Southerners followed the fleeing enemy and turned the respectable defeat for the Union into an undeniable rout. Though some of the Northern troops would arrive home to Washington by the next day, their campaign had been crushed. The weight of such a catastrophic and embarrassing loss was violently damaging for President Lincoln's reputation, but there was even more going against him by now. As the fighting got into full swing, the Union president's wartime decisions began to appear tyrannical some. 
A crackdown on dissension wasn't entirely unpredictable, but would prove to be an infringement on the First Amendment rights of many Americans nevertheless. Mail, telegraphs, and the press became regularly censored and at times even silenced. Meanwhile, anyone openly showing support for the Confederates was at risk of being arrested. Even a Democratic congressman, Clement L. Vallandigham, was arrested in his home state for speaking out against the war, while the office of the nonconformist Sunday Chronicle was destroyed by government officials. All of this made many start to think about ideas such as impeachment, but as Lincoln built up his defenses around D.C., both metaphorically and physically, opposition was left in the Right. Let's talk about that for a second. So that's something that a lot of people don't know, that Lincoln actually started to control the media and silence them. And there's a reason for that. Very unconstitutional. But at the time, you know, the Constitution was pretty much out the window. See, what people don't seem to understand is how this happened and why. I've mentioned the fun Jewel brothers many, many times. Why do I mention them? Because one brother funds the left, the other brother funds the right. The British were brilliant. They needed to create division. They needed to gain territory, right? They needed to, God save the queen. Didn't that, didn't, isn't that what Biden said? All right. I want you guys to pay attention. So what was the whole deal with this? Europe was going berserk. They had plagues. Their monetary system was down. Everyone was starving except from the United Kingdom that was getting a shit ton of stuff from the Union. But while they were trading with the Northerners, they were funding the Southerners. That's how they had this breath of wind. But then they had the right people in the right place. And here's where the greenbacks come in. What? Fun fact. A lot of people don't know that prior to Abraham Lincoln's assassination, there was an attempt on his life two years prior to that. You know, they wanted impeachment. They wanted this. Remember, they delayed fucking elections. I went over this a long time ago. They delayed elections when he was being elected. They moved the month. They tried to push, pay attention. This is all the same thing. Everything. The chaos you see, the division you see is all the same. Every single bit of it. They fund both sides. <laughs> That's why those that are in the House and Senate right now, they've been playing both sides. Some new blood is pretty good. But let's see how financing the Civil War happened. Right? They delayed elections. They financed the wars but they were trading with the North to have enough money for them to do something. Hmm, interesting. Let's go. When President Lincoln took office in March of 1861, the Civil War was already underway. Seven states had seceded and the bombardment of Fort Sumter would soon begin. Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase estimated that he needed $320 million to meet the Union's expenses for the first year of the war. He had on hand less than $2 million. Secretary Chase frantically set up plans to borrow $150 million from banks in New York, Philadelphia, and Boston. 
The banks, of course, thought that he would be willing to accept deposit credit like any other borrower would. But they had forgotten one small detail. The U.S. was still under the independent treasury system. This meant a complete separation of bank and state. Some might have been tempted to cheat on that arrangement, you know, during a war. But Chase turned out to be quite a scrupulous fellow. He politely informed the banks that he couldn't legally accept their offer of credit, and he let them know to what address they could mail the $150 million worth of gold coin. If you've watched the previous episodes in this series, you'll know that the banks must have thought Chase was out of his mind. All the banks in the whole country couldn't have paid that much gold. After the California gold rush, there was a lot of gold in U.S. bank vaults, but not quite that much. It would have bankrupted them. Banks had to keep a large gold reserve in case depositors asked for it back. And most banks didn't hold enough gold on hand to redeem even a third of the notes they put in circulation. So giving all their gold away to the federal government wasn't an option. Even giving away half of their reserves would probably put them out of business. But Chase insisted. They ended up working out a compromise to make the payments in a series of installments. As the government spent the first installment, the banks hoped that whoever got them would turn around and deposit them again at a bank for safekeeping. At that point, the banks could recycle the same coins, loaning them out to the federal government again and again. It would have been a lot easier to do away with the independent treasury, but whatever. The installment plan worked for a while, but 1861 didn't go well for the Union, as you might know. People started to lose confidence in both the government and the banking system, so they started to hoard gold. That meant the coins weren't recycling back to their vaults as the banks hoped they were forced to suspend specie payments on December 30th, 1861. Secretary Chase tried to borrow more money from abroad, but that wasn't really much of an option. Chase asked Great Britain for help. Britain had already abolished slavery in 1833, and most people there weren't a big fan of the Confederate South, but they did rely on cotton imports as stock for their textile industry. So the British Empire, unfortunately, decided to stay out of this one. The Union wouldn't... Actually, the British Empire was funding the South at the same time, and they were like, yo, we're trading with the North. They were like, yeah, but you know, cotton and stuff. They didn't say, hey, we're funding them, and they're beating you. Let's figure it out. We're going to figure it out. Chase is like, what am I going to do? Give me some money. And they're like, well, maybe you should centralize currency. Maybe you should make one currency, sir. So after a trip and in a hot box with the Brits, something changed. Chase, wanting to help America, was met with Morgan. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Watch this. And just pay attention and compare it to today. Think C, synthetic homogenous currency or crypto right? Digital currency. Think of, think of what we're doing now, right? Europe is in turmoil. It's on fire. Africa's on fire. Middle East is on fire. 
right? The U.S. is too busy fighting itself with a puppet, an actor as a president, right? And here we are repeating history. Be getting any loans from them anytime soon. Meanwhile, the prospect for a quick war was fading with each Confederate victory. The Union's advantages in industry and manpower would triumph in the long run, but in 1861 and 2, General Lee's tactical brilliance overwhelmed Union armies on the battlefield time and time again. Lincoln needed more money, and Chase racked his brain to figure out a way to supply it. Chase's first recommendation was for a complete overhaul of the nation's banking system. The Civil War is sometimes called the first modern war in world history, as it made full use of railroads and the telegraph for long-distance communication. But in terms of finance, it was a completely different situation. The Union was stuck with a banking system decades out of date. At the start of the war, there were over 1,300 banks nationwide. Each one printed their own paper currency. Some of these banks were well capitalized, some not so well, and others were complete frauds without a dime in reserves. To top it off, there were also hundreds of forgeries circulating too. Every business in the country needed banknote detector manuals to tell the good bills from the forgeries and the solid banks from the frauds. And even the good bills would normally get less valuable the further it was away from its bank of issue. Because to get your gold, you had to actually travel to the bank in question. Dealing with all of this was an impossible situation. On top of this difficulty was the major problem that the government couldn't borrow from the nation's own banks, lest they be put out of business as we've already seen. The U.S absolutely needed a national bank, but Andrew Jackson still loomed large in the national consciousness. It was politically impossible. So instead of one national bank, Secretary Chase suggested a system of national banks. This completely new banking system would create a single paper currency to replace the old state banknotes which he suggested should slowly but surely be taxed out of existence. Side note, the state banks challenged this tax on their banknotes, of course, and the case made it all the way to the Supreme Court in 1869 with VZ Bank v. Fenno. The court sided with the government, and the decision was read by the Chief Justice. Guess who? Secretary Chase! You're Chief Justice now? Well, that's convenient. That thing you did, you think it was legal? Well, okay then, case closed. I'm kidding. He actually had a pretty good argument for it, based on Congress's power to regulate the money supply. Without this power to restrain the circulation of money, indeed, the attempts of Congress to secure a sound and uniform currency for the country must be futile. Let's think about this for a second. How many of you think that the forged currencies were actually planted? in order to create a problem and then offer a solution. Kind of sounds like something that happens every single day, right? 
we'll make a problem. Let's put out some fraudulent currencies, have the banks have losses and say, oh dear, we need to figure out, we have a book, this is all fake currency. See how quickly that happened? Do you see how quickly they did it? Huh, are you paying attention? No, wait, there's more. Chase's new banking system, but also changed the way reserves work. Instead of note issue being limited by the amount of gold and silver in bank vaults, it would now be limited by the amount of US bonds in bank vaults. The notes and the bonds would still be redeemable for gold, but just having gold alone wouldn't mean they got to print more banknotes anymore. They needed to buy bonds for that now, which weren't always available. While the treasury would offer a dollar of new gold certificates for every dollar's worth of gold deposited with them, Overall, this design led to an inflexible currency, a flaw which would ultimately prove fatal for Chase's national banking system, as we'll get to in the next episodes. But in 1863, the national banking system was a huge step forward out of the Jacksonian era. The new banking system created a single national currency for the first time ever. Even Hamilton never accomplished that feat. And while the independent treasury wasn't I also wanted to point out something. Pay attention to this, the currency. As you could see, National Bank of Bismarck. Did you know the North Dakota was never really a state until 2012? So weird. That way, if you sue for all this monetary shit, you know, they weren't really a state. So, and that's fact. So, technicalities. So, and while the independent treasury wasn't completely abolished yet, it was made more or less obsolete by the National Bank Act. Going forward, the government could actually borrow from the new national banks without putting them out of business. This new banking system took a few years to get going, but back in December of 1861, it was pretty clear the Union didn't have years to wait. President Lincoln and the Union Army needed money, and they needed it now. Fortunately, Secretary Chase had a few more cards to play. He instituted two new taxes to help with the war effort. The first was an internal revenue tax, and the second is one you'll recognize, the income tax. It was progressively structured, with the top rate being 10% on all income over $10,000 a year, which was a lot back then. But there was a reason they never tried this before, because the income tax was totally unconstitutional at this time. They finally got called on it in 1894, and the income tax was struck down. But in the middle of a war, the courts will apparently let you get away with anything. But even so, Secretary Chase knew it would take time to raise money through taxes. So what did he do? Before I tell you, I have to say first that Secretary Chase was a hard money man. All respectable people were hard money people. He believed gold was the only legitimate monetary foundation. But he also played his last card because he had to, you know, as a stopgap before these others could take effect even though he was morally opposed to it. You know what it is, the same thing we always do in an emergency. 
Yes, he printed money. These were called United States notes or greenbacks because they had a green back. But the idea is basically identical to the continental currency used during the Revolutionary War. There's essentially no difference. It's 100% paper money. $150 million worth of greenbacks were authorized by Congress in February of 1862. But they already needed another $150 million by July of 62. And finally, another $150 million was printed in 1863. So now we get to talk about inflation. By the time the first greenbacks went into circulation, prices had already increased by 10%. And it didn't slow down from there. By the end of the war in 1865, prices had doubled. But look, this didn't have that much to do with the paper money per se, because as we know, banks had been printing paper money this whole time. Inflation always seems to happen in wartime because so much of the nation's product is diverted to the war effort. And yes, more money is also pumped into the economy as well. So inflation is boosted by both sides of that. One more thing about greenbacks. If you've watched the previous episodes in this series, you'll know that printing money was unconstitutional at this time. This action by Chase as Treasury Secretary was challenged twice, both times making it to the Supreme Court. The first case was Hepburn v. Griswold, where Chase, as Chief Justice, siding with the majority, rebuked his own actions and that of Congress in making greenbacks a legal tender. The Legal Tender Act of 1862 said that people couldn't refuse to be paid in greenbacks, even if they preferred gold. But it was struck down with this decision in 1870. Then, just the next year, the Supreme Court reversed its stance on money printing, making it legal for the first time with Knox v. Lee. You gotta give Chase credit for his honesty. He continued to argue that his actions as secretary were essentially illegal by drafting a minority opinion in this case. But Congress's power to create and regulate the value of money was extended to paper with this decision, and it remains that way to this day. Greenbacks were essential to funding the Civil War. But all of the excess money that was pumped into the economy did contribute to some significant inflation. After the war, this led the creditors of the country to ponder. How do you stuff the toothpaste back in the tube? Mm. Is it possible to undo all that war inflation? This is important because if you're holding government bonds, you don't want to be paid back with inflated dollars. We were totally off the gold standard during and after the Civil War, and we couldn't get back on it again until all this inflation was removed from the system. So the bankers and other creditors decided they would squeeze and squeeze the whole country until currency was as good as gold once more. But the people don't like to be squeezed. They had other ideas, and a populist revolt was brewing. Thanks for watching. If you like this video, why not?
Well then, now we know that the Civil War gave birth to the currency after Chase had a nice conversation with the Brits, and they explained to him how they'd love to help, even though they gained their independence from them 50 years ago, but they just can't because they need cotton. Now let's go back to how this happened. Just go back and watch the rest of the, how they won. Because now that you know the monetary side, maybe it'll make more sense. Pressure from abolitionist activists was increasing. Thus far, Lincoln's main concern was the restoration of the Union. But many freed slaves turned activists were cranking up the heat on the president with the goal of pushing him to make the war about abolition and emancipation, not just winning back the Confederates. Honest Abe, however, wasn't yet ready to change the focus of the war, and instead signed off on the Congress-passed Confiscation Act of 1861. This act gave the federal government the authority to seize property from anyone deemed to be participating in the rebellion, property including, but not limited to, slaves. These fugitive slaves would be classed as contraband and were often then utilized to work as laborers on Union infrastructure, far from making the war about emancipation. Four days after Congress passed the first Confiscation Act, the battle was back on. Brigadier General Nathaniel Leon was about to come face to I showed you guys how they needed money, and he was like, oh my god, I need money. So while he's needing money, he issues a confiscation act. I confiscate anyone that's doing this. I take their property, and I take their money. Oh, gosh. Doesn't it sound freaking familiar? Executive orders to confiscate those enacting evil acts but at the same time it was kind of weird because then he would confiscate the slaves and make the slaves you know kind of work for the union too but they were free so i want you guys to pay attention please this is key face with brigadier general ben mcculloch and major general sterling price of the confederacy in springfield missouri for what would be known as the Battle of Wilson's Creek. This would be the first major clash of the Civil War west of the Mississippi, and one of the fewer times that the Union forces were actually outnumbered. In an almost amusingly ironic twist, it turned out that both sides, as of August 9th, were planning to ambush one another, both of these plans specifically hinging on the element of surprise with neither knowing what the other was intending. General Leon of the Union's tactic was to send 1,200 men under Colonel Franz Siegel wide around the Confederate right to the south, while the remaining force involved would swing north and hit the Southerners' left. The latter, however, actually had a similar plan, but a stroke of luck and rain caused General McCullough to abandon his plans. This left the element of surprise fully in the hands of the Northerners. The marching of the Union broke the silence of the morning calm on August 10th. Leon's plan, unlike McCullough's, was still on, and it had begun now. The Confederate forces were utterly dumbfounded by the ambush. 
They had failed to anticipate a surprise offensive from the Union troops, and this allowed the latter's advance to play out at a swift pace. Leon and his men were able to advance all the way to what would soon be known as Bloody Hill, before being stalled by the Pulaski, Arkansas Battery's defense attack. While the Pulaski Battery kept the Northerners from advancing further, General Price and his men regrouped and headed for the hill, where a gruesome battle would subsequently break out for nearly six hours. The Union had begun the clash with a clear strategic advantage, but as the warfare on Bloody Hill carried on, the tide began to shift in favor of the Confederates. McCullough was eventually pitted against Seagal at Sharp Farm, where the Northerners' thus far triumphant flanking maneuver was crushed by the counterattack from the Southerners so badly that Seagal and his troops abruptly retreated. Meanwhile, Leon's luck was fading even more drastically. Himself already weakened by wounds he'd obtained in the prior hours of ruthless battle, Leon was eventually struck down by the South, requiring a hasty transfer of command to Major Samuel Sturgis. The Northerner's new leader wasn't incompetent, but victory for him by now seemed impossible. With scarcely any ammunition left before the clocks even struck noon, the Union was in a full retreat back to Springfield. A few weeks after the Battle of Wilson's Creek, the Union would finally get a win, but this time by sea. The Confederates for some time now had been authorizing privateering along the Carolina coast, which predictably triggered a military response from the Union. This reaction, however, was poorly anticipated by the Southerners at two forts in particular, Fort Clark and Fort Hatteras. This resulted in both partially constructed forts falling into Union hands after a naval bombardment forced the troops manning Fort Clark to flee for Fort Hatteras, which itself would soon surrender. It was a much-needed victory for the North, but it was followed by an even worse defeat. The Confederates were about to take Lexington. General Price and his 15,000 men reached Lexington, Missouri on September 11th 1861. Small-scale battle began the next day, as the Union forces attempted to stop the Confederate advance, but Price was better prepared and surely determined. It wouldn't take long for the Southerners to pin their opponent down in the college housing the Union fortifications. Although the remaining Northerners couldn't be beat out or into surrender by the Confederates, a two-hour artillery battle and delayed supplies caused Price to hold off continuing the offensive temporarily. It is unnecessary to kill off the boys here. Patience will give us what we want, he explained. Less than a week later, on September 18th, however, it seemed that Price was satisfied with the patience shown thus far. Despite strong Union artillery, the Confederates advanced at long last, bottling up the defenders once more. One, two, three, four. Nine hours of cannon fire ensued. Meanwhile, the Southerners were additionally in the process of capturing the nearby Anderson House, which was in use as a Union hospital for wounded soldiers. This stunning potential war crime, at least in the eyes of the Union, prompted the Northerners to storm and retake the house, but control would then fall back to the Confederates more permanently. Two days later, 
the city as a whole fell into southern hands. The following month would see yet another embarrassing defeat for the Union as distrust of the president and his abilities were on the rise. After some poorly executed reconnaissance across the Potomac River over in Virginia, a decision was made to launch another Union attack, this time under the command of Abraham Lincoln's dear friend, Colonel Edward Baker. This foray would be an utter disaster due to horrendous planning and execution. Baker himself would be slain, and his men, all positioned precariously at the edge of Ball's Bluff, essentially cornered by the Confederates, either fled, were killed too, or leapt to their deaths off the bluff. Many of those who did escape furthermore drowned trying to cross the icy river. The generals who had been involved in the campaign, General Charles Stone and even General George McClellan, were heavily scrutinized, and Stone would eventually be blamed and charged with treason as a result. McClellan, however, was distant enough from the disaster itself and would eventually be promoted to General-in-Chief of all Union armies despite deep mistrust between himself and the President. Distrust was building between DC and its overseas counterparts now as well. Particularly, the bonds between the Union and Great Britain seemed to be dwindling, and on November 8th, it would appear nearly non-existent. Britain thus far was acting a bit So, you saw the video about the greenbacks. You understood that at that point, Lincoln knew that there were infiltrators everywhere. I went over another video maybe a couple years ago showing things. Hmm. Same name, same players, same scenarios. So he realizes Britain's not on their side, right? Because Britain's like, no, we eat cotton. We can't give you any money. You know, Chase goes over there and they're like, listen, Chase, why don't you guys just centralize your banking, make it kind of go back, but not really. And, um, you know, we'll figure it out, right? We're, we're going to figure this out and just you work on that money thing because we can't. Now, here's the other side of the story. See, this is how you decentralize information. While you're looking at the money side that we discussed, now take a look at the other side, the political side, where we're talking about what the British were really doing foreign interference. God save the Queen, right? Sympathetic to the South, largely because they missed the crucial cotton exports from the now Confederate states. As a result, communication between the two entities led President Jefferson Davis to dispatch two envoys over to the British mail ship, the Trent, to try and garner official support and recognition of the Confederacy. Unbeknownst to Washington, on November 8, 1861, the month after the envoys joined the British on their ship, U.S. Captain Wilkes intercepted the Trent. The captain then had his lieutenant board the ship to search it, at which point the Confederate envoys were detained and the Brits told that they could leave on their own. This triggered a hailstorm from Britain, which deems the acts of Captain Wilkes to have been both a violation of British neutrality as well as a blatant violation of the law. Eventually, under the demand... Wait a minute. So they got caught. Kind of like a tarmac meeting. They got caught having conversations. They got caught funding the slave traders. They got caught, right? They got caught. And England's like, oh, how dare you? This is such a violation. We're neutral. My ass. They planned it all. 
here's here's where it gets interesting. It's so deja vu-ish. Of Great Britain and unwillingness to go to war with their former overlords, DC agreed to release the prisoners and toiled to resolve the situation diplomatically. While this would work for the time being, it was only the start of British influence on what the Union was willing to do to win the war. What were they willing to win the war? Well, we'll end it today so you guys can see how similar things are as to how did Ukraine gain their independence? We'll end it with that. I want you guys to pay attention. Playbooks, trusting plans. They trust their plan and you should trust it too. They just reuse it and reuse it through eons and eons. This is exactly what's happening now. I wrote an article before the elections claiming that this is the most civilized civil war we've had because we are so distracted, we're not paying attention. We cannot see. Remember, when all of that went down, Lincoln, he couldn't have an election. They delayed the elections. They changed the elections. Remember that? But the British were like, nah, man, they set up the central banking system. This is perfect. Now let's back them. Enough of this. Let's back them because now we're in. We got it done. This is it. Watch. Watch how Ukraine did it. Because, you know, they were also planned for World War III. And now you can see it almost feels like it's the Confederates versus the Union. Project Ukraine. Many amazing history channels have come together in their pursuit of presenting the historical past and drawing attention to the current times. Watching videos about important historical events on YouTube can be entertaining for many, but lots of times, history is not just about leaders, emperors, or strategies on the battlefield, but about ordinary people, their struggles, and their crises. Nowadays, we are witnessing a humanitarian crisis with our own eyes in Ukraine. Therefore, we can do more than just watch. Babin Yar Holocaust Memorial Center in We can make a difference and create an island of hope in this ocean of sadness and terror. By accessing the link in the the friends then. I wanted to say something before we begin this. The territory of Ukraine that was always part of Mother Russia or Revolutionary Russia, listen to the words, Revolutionary Russia, was unfortunate because there are people there but those that seek control pay attention to how they came to the aid of Ukrainians. Oh, and might I add, might I add that at the turn of the century, we, the United States of America, brought in a bunch of Ukrainians to the United States. And we started monetary changes. I do not support Ukraine's freedom for one reason. Ukraine is independent as part of their homeland. This is my take. Kiev, Ukraine, is being used by the West. They have more debt than any other nation on the planet right now, as you know it, to the IMF. They own nothing. They have nothing. They are simply a front as a hold. It's almost like the story we saw with the Peloponnese. 
how the Ottoman Empire gave money to the Spartans to defeat the enemy. And then they took the Spartans down. Now the West is giving money, tons of it, and has been for almost a century to Ukraine. They have given them so much, they're in they own nothing. And so it's about time that they take them over in the name of freedom, in the name of progressiveness, in the name of such things. They are simply a pawn. And this is horrific. Simply a pawn. Just a hundred years ago, Ukraine and Russia were not necessarily the best of friends then either. In fact, by 1917, they were free-falling into a catastrophic war. The first major domino to fall can be identified as the October Revolution, which occurred in Russia in 1917. After overthrowing the Tsar in March, the Bolsheviks next aimed to overthrow the provisional government that took over. Now I wanted to pause that, because wait till you see why. Are you ready? So in 1919, they had the October dot, 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 dot. But what was happening in the U.S. at the time when Ukraine was being had? Want to see? The red summer of 1919. <laughs> Almost like they planned it to the T. If we must die, let it not be like hogs hunted and penned in this inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and angry dogs making their mock of our accursed lot. Like men we will face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. Claude McKay wrote the poem, If We Must Die, after a series of attacks against black Americans in the United States the summer of 1919. Author James Weldon Johnson coined the term Red Summer to describe those events. A century ago, hundreds of black Americans were killed in attacks all across the country, and yet the nation has built few memorials to those dead. The Red Summer of 1919 deserves to be remembered. 1919 was somewhat of a turning point for the United States. The First World War ended in November 1918. Veterans returned to America that was rapidly changing. Women would soon gain the right to vote, and Prohibition would begin an experiment in banning alcohol. The army during the First World War was segregated, and some black regiments were put under French command because white American officers were not comfortable commanding black troops. Many white Americans blamed the coming tragedy on the French for treating black soldiers as equals and planting ideas in their heads. Called Soldiers of Democracy, black veterans came back to the United States ready to demand civil rights. W.E.B. Dubois wrote, We return. We return from fighting. We return fighting. For black Americans, 1919 marked 300 years since the first African slaves were brought to the American colonies, and they had begun to start calling for change. 1919 was a time of anxiety in the United States and the world. The First World War had ended, but other social movements and economic conditions contributed to an anxious time. Inflation was rising. Labor strikes were common. In Russia, the Bolsheviks had overthrown the Tsar. Americans feared Bolshevik agitation might come to their shores. Anarchist bombings were common. The economy was in flux, and in northern cities, white residents were afraid of the new black migrants bringing economic competition. The Great Migration would eventually send millions of black Americans to the industrial north and midwest, fleeing violence, segregation, and lack of economic opportunity in the South. 
Unfortunately, they were sometimes greeted with the same in places where they relocated. While they were at first unconcerned, southern employers eventually worried about the loss of cheap labor, or to stem the tide of the exodus. From spring into fall of 1919, these tensions exploded into a series of violent episodes that killed hundreds of black Americans. It served as a wake-up call, but it also spurred a movement in which blacks in America fought back, sometimes for the first time. An early episode of violence occurred in Jenkins County, Georgia, in April. A black church party was interrupted when two white officers arrested a black man named Edmund Scott for possession of a pistol. A wealthy black farmer named Joe Ruffin offered to pay his fine, but the officers demanded cash instead of a check. When Ruffin tried to pull Scott to the car, an officer struck Ruffin with his pistol, which discharged, knocking Ruffin unconscious. Ruffin's son, an army veteran, thinking his father was dead, shot and killed one of the officers in retaliation. In the ensuing gunfight, the second officer was wounded and then beaten to death. As news spread, what was described as hundreds of white men rushed into the town, bent on revenge. Joe surrendered to the local sheriff, who protected him from a mob bent on lynching. But the mob caught and lynched two of his sons, as well as another black man who had been in the area. They also burned the church and six other black churches, as well as three black Masonic lodges in the area. Ruffin was led to another county by the sheriff and put in jail there. Repeated attempts to try him for murder or manslaughter finally failed, but he was left impoverished from his legal expenses, moved to South Carolina, as it would not have been safe in Georgia. No charges were ever filed against any of the men who killed Ruffin's sons or destroyed property. On July 19th, in Washington, D.C., a white woman was jostled on the street by two black men. One of the men was questioned by police and released, but a rumor started among some white army veterans that the man had committed rape. A white mob started a four-day riot, attacking and beating hundreds of black individuals and damaging businesses. When the city's police refused to intervene, black Americans fought back and defended their neighborhoods with firearms. There were shootings and attacks from both sides, as President Woodrow Wilson finally sent 200 army troops to intervene, although heavy summer rains may have done more to quell the riot than the troops. When it finally ended, July 25th, as many as 40 people had died from gunshot wounds or in street fights, at least 150 were injured. In Chicago, Illinois, a week-long riot was set off on July 27th, when a black teenager named Eugene Williams, hanging onto a makeshift raft, unknowingly floated into the white part of an unofficially segregated Southside beach on Lake Michigan. A white man threw rocks at Williams and other black swimmers to drive them away. Williams was hit in the forehead, knocking him into the water, where he drowned. When black witnesses tried to get the man who threw the rock arrested, the police did nothing, and when the bystanders complained, a fight broke out between white and black mobs, and spread into five days of general rioting. While there was violence on both sides, the vast majority of the acts of murder, arson, and property damage were perpetrated by white gangs against black residents on Chicago's south side. Police did little to protect the black neighborhoods, and the state's attorney accused the police of arresting African-American rioters while refusing to arrest white rioters. Illinois was forced to call in the militia to restore order. 23 black and 15 white residents were killed in the rioting. 500 more were injured. More than a thousand black families were left homeless due to arson. The black men who fought back in D.C. and Chicago were often returning veterans of the First World War. They had Wait a minute. Are you saying we had BLM back then? Are you saying that they staged these riots and caused division when there wasn't any? in 1919, just like they did in 1818, just like they did in 2019, almost feels 
like their hundred year plans of enslaving people voluntarily is like that graph I said at the beginning, where it's like, you go up, you plateau, you go up, you plateau, you go up, you plateau. And the thing is, when are people gonna learn? When are people gonna learn? This has all happened before. The plagues, what's going on in Europe, now let's go back to Ukraine because that was happening around that time, wasn't it? At the same time, getting Ukraine liberated, right? We need to liberate the Ukraine. We need to gain their independence from these darned federalists of Russians. And then we're gonna create the USSR because we're gonna put a war in. You're gonna, that's Tory. no. We need to liberate Ukrainians. Wait a minute, Ukrainians are independent areas, right? Within Russia, kind of like Siberia. It's almost entering like a different country. Yet they work in harmony. Crimea is their beach resort area. That's part of Russia too. Again and again and again. Borders, borders, control, control. But how do you control people? Here's the thing. Throughout history, empires and these that know better than all of us have more advanced technology and knowledge than any one of you would have. Funny thing is, in the previous video, uh, it kind of said that they burned down, pay attention, black Masonic lodges. <laughs> what? Uh, what? I thought it was white people that did that. Then they also said that they burned their houses down due to arson. Lots of people lost their house. Sounds like the summer of love. Sounds like a red summer, almost like the red summer of 1819. See, uh, because people don't pay attention to history, right? They're doomed to repeat it. This is why they took Robert E. Lee's statue down. Did you know, fun fact, 20% of the people that fought during the Civil War were under the age of 18? Did you also know that women participated in the war uh, on behalf of the Union and lost their lives? Did you know that? See, that's the thing. The Civil War was never about race. They made it about race in order to be more progressive and get more, hey, we don't do slavery anymore here in Europe. So, you know, maybe you should start using that. Maybe you'll get more. We need like progressiveness, you know. So then they get the monetary system. Oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't have kids look after the elderly. Maybe we should deploy a social credit system, something called social security. We'll start working on that in the early 1900s. And while we do that, we'll give them a flu where they have to wear masks. We'll give them another race war so we can implement this new monetary fucking fiat system where everyone has a number like cattle and that's what you pay into like cattle. And then we give you a little bit here, 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 and here. Fast forward to 2016, 2017. Let's have discussions about the synthetic homogenous currency. BRICS is being formed. BRICS is evil. They want gold-backed currency. We need Bitcoin-backed currency. Oh, look at that. Repeating itself every hundred years when they need to further close in on this box called survival, which is needed in order to control the people. And what are they surviving on? Paper dollar, dollar, dollar. Well, now let's make it digital so we have more control because people can hoard money under their bed. 
but they won't be able to hoard cryptocurrency. We'll be able to delete that shit if they don't mind their P's and Q's. Now let's get back to Ukraine. Ordinaries hoped to replace the ruling class with a Bolshevik communist regime and a coup d'etat that led to a full-blown civil war. This conflict would carry on until 1923. But Lenin had already established his own government in Russia, and they were on the way to forming the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, after attempting to loosen ties with the new Russian Republic, the Ukrainian National Republic was founded as an autonomous nation within the Russian Republic on November 20th, 1917. This was a direct reaction to the contemporary chaos over the border in Russia. Actually, let's talk some real history. So do you know why Russia became the USSR? Right. So as you know, the new monetary system had kicked off in the United States and suddenly everyone was buying shit from the United States. We made cars, we gave people electricity. We were like top notch. All this money just started to happen because we were taxing people illegitimately. We were creating one currency. We had full control over that shit. And so then how do we counter that? Well, in Lenin's mind, shit, we're going to build a wall, we're going to say fuck everyone, and we're going to work on us. And this is why Russia was so industrialized. And they called it the Soviet Union. Huh? We're a union of Soviets, which is Russians, and we're going to stay within ourselves. We're going to maintain religion and family. Then Lenin goes a little bit berserk, almost like every good leader. They infiltrate, they attack, and they come in. And so they're like, uh, 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 the West is like, nah, man, we can't have this happen because if they're productive and they survive, we have a problem. All right, let's go into this till because if we can grab Kiev that has a lot of natural resources and we get in there, we could use that for World War III. World War I was already kicking off, right? This is what happened during World War I. World War I. World War III was Ukraine. Now you're seeing it as three different wars. The war began the minute we signed that Declaration of Independence, okay? That's where the plan hit off. That was the great experiment that someone had for free people, for free nations. They're like, yeah, I kind of like that. We can hijack that shit and we can mold it into something that works for us, the people that are really in charge. So here we are at the beginning stages. Now pay attention. Lenin's like, nah, man, we're not playing this game with this US dollar right? This is what happened. Everybody needs to trade on the dollar. And people are like, no, we like our gold. We like our stuff. Like, stop it. We don't want to be in this. IMF is being born. The Paris Treaty, the, the Paris Accord was already written. Get this. In 1865 was the first Paris Accord. Get out of here. Almost like they planned it. You should read history more. And so they started to say, all right, uh, society is advancing. We need to find new things to trigger them. Let's tell them that the whole world is going to collapse, right? It did, you know, we're going to have a problem like the dinosaurs. We're going to become extinct. Man, there's way too many people that are thinking on their own. We need to call that. Um, let's deploy a lot of tech. Let's give them some tech, right? Because they don't know it exists. Let's give it to them. Here we go. And here's how we control your minds. We give you all these shiny objects. Look over here. So while we're during World War I, while we were having the Spanish flu, while we were having race wars, we were deploying a new monetary system that the crown, on behalf of the U.S., of course, was trying to implement in Europe for control, too. Because remember, while we were having our civil war, they were having civil wars, too. 
So now let's look. Oh, suddenly Ukraine's like, yeah, we're making a border. Why would they do that? Why would they be against it? And this is what created Lenin to become a little crazy and shift his focus on his people to more survivalism. And because the Ukrainian authorities heavily condemned the Bolsheviks, nevertheless, the revolution would quickly begin to reach its tentacles next door. By December, armed uprisings by Bolshevik revolutionaries were already popping up in Ukraine. But so far, the latter was able to quell these outbursts and deport those involved. The situation would scarcely stay simple for long though, as the Bolsheviks became more determined and aggressive. On December 17th, the Council of People's Commissars in Petrograd demanded that Bolshevik troops be granted permission to be stationed within Ukraine. And if this was not done, severe action would be taken. The Ukrainian Republic, however, had no interest in entertaining such an ultimatum and flatly refused. By this point, it was clear that diplomacy would go nowhere for the Bolsheviks, who had already proclaimed. So just so you understand, uh, the Ukraine was already at that time getting money from the Europeans. You're going to see them insert themselves. Lenin at that point had become extremely ill. I believe that they used the same drugs they used on Hitler at that point. And so, you know, they said, all right, look, you want to be independent, but we still keep protections. We're all under the same banner. He tried to find some middle ground and they put their foot down. Now look what happens. Their own Ukrainian government to combat the existing one. War was the only option left. War was declared by the Bolshevik government against their opponent on January 2nd, 1918. And by the end of the same month, the Ukrainian National Republic cut all ties with Petrograd as pro-Bolshevik Soviet forces marched into Ukrainian soil. The fighting force of the Bolsheviks numbered around 30,000 in total and was made up of garrisoned units, Russian army regulars, and detachments of the Red Guard. They also had the support of local Bolshevik revolutionaries in left bank Ukraine, who prompted uprisings in correspondence with the invasion of troops from Russia. This was all launched against a Ukrainian force of nearly half, totaling only around 15,000, and consisting of volunteer detachments and a handful of free Cossack and Sikh riflemen battalions. By the end of January, the Bolsheviks had already made a swift and undeniable impact on Ukraine's stability, taking cities from Kharkiv to Lizova to Poltava, Bakhmak, and more. With the next target being Kiev, the UNR became desperate to defend their capital. At first, the Sikh riflemen and free Cossacks had managed to keep hold of the city after being challenged by another attempted troops marched toward the capital, the Ukrainian government had to reconsider whether they were even capable of holding off the invaders in any sense. The outlook was grim by now, and the UNR authorities were concerned that a final stand in Kiev may decimate their defenses entirely. As a result, the capital city was evacuated on February 8th, all but handing it right over to the Bolshevik forces, who arrived the following day. With the capital now under their control, the Bolsheviks next turned to right-bank Ukraine, completely unaware of the plot twist that was about to occur. Unwilling to give up entirely, the Ukrainian authorities, on the same day they lost Kiev, signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which meant that Germany and Austria-Hungary were set to enter the war on the side of the UNR.
Roughly 450,000 troops were sent into Ukraine by the Central Powers, which abruptly changed the tide of the entire conflict. Now Wait a minute. Are you saying... <laughs> Wait, stop it! Stop. Wait. Wait. Oh, no. Wait. Stop it. Stop. Stop. Are you saying that the Germans came in to help them? And the crown and all of them came in. And this is before, right before Stalin took over, who then sat at the table with Roosevelt and Churchill and just, you know, drew a line across the Korean peninsula, almost like he was one of them. You see how this goes? And he perpetuated the USSR because it, it was okay. We needed that division. Are you paying attention? See, isn't this really weird how they all decided, hey, you know, Ukraine is going to be a neutral state. We're going to go in there and we're going to give them all the troops they want, all the money they want. Here we go. Uh-huh. Oh, shit. Starting to make sense now? Now, it was the UNR who pushed their rival out of the right bank and retook the capital by the start of March, continuing the counteroffensive through the left bank. The only issue for the UNR at this point came when the Germans noticed that the current government, the Central Rada, had enacted some policies that were affecting the exportation of foodstuffs to the Central Powers, which was what Ukraine was supposed to provide in exchange for military aid. Instead of changing the earlier agreement, the Germans replaced the Central Rada with the Hetman government, as the combined Ukrainian-German-Austro-Hungarian military forces continued to beat the Bolsheviks into submission until they eventually were forced to sign a peace agreement with the UNR on June 12th. In the meantime, they were taking out Belarus, right, which is up here, right? Um, let me see. Hold on a second. So let me get there. So over here, they were taking this portion out. You know, then we had East Germans. Hitler was starting to be like, yo, this is not okay. Like, what are we doing? Why are we going there? Why are they pressuring us for the dollar? Why are they doing this? And, you know, and then we had, you know, south of Turkey, there was this domain called Georgia. Georgia, you know, where Yovanovitch was also an ambassador where ISIS was hiding, you know, in that apartment building. I wrote an article about that. You should see it. It's a little bit jip, 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 but it has a lot of Easter eggs in there for future, you know, discussions. But, you know, that's where Stalin was picked up from, you know, through the Ottoman controlled empire that knows this. It was such a hot, it almost seems like it's repeating itself. You know, how everyone's like, we're all in for the Ukrainian. So you have to wonder, this is why Putin's like, look, I'm not playing the stupid game because I've seen this movie before because while they were distracting in Ukraine, they were coming in from other areas. Hence why he's guarding his Arctic area. Big deal. The Arctic, very big deal. The Arctic, very big deal. The Antarctic too, which is majority controlled by the Russians too. That is going to be in another episode. But this success for Ukraine would be short lived. In November of the same year, the Directorate of the Ukrainian National Republic overthrew the Hetman government, rekindling instability that the Bolsheviks took full advantage of. Attempts at forming a successful peace deal between Kiev and Moscow failed, and by the start of 1919, another full-fledged Bolshevik invasion erupted. It didn't take long for the previous battles to repeat themselves, as the left bank fell to the Bolsheviks just as it had before, 
and Kiev would be fled yet again by the Ukrainian government. And don't forget, around 1919, while most of us were dying and keeping a four-foot distance, and we had race wars, we also started our depression. We were entering a recession that was a depression in the early 20s. Do you remember that? And while people were jumping off roofs and losing their life savings and their money had nothing because they were all pouring it into Ukraine and Europe, you know, the roaring 20s came and we had fringy you know, dresses that were swaying left and right. Skirts were super mini. We were sexualizing people and then pushing the idea, hey, you don't need to watch your mom and dad. They got social security. The government will look after them. You mind your business. No need for family and stuff. Just pay attention here. Swinging little dresses. Let's go. While the world is burning and we're redrawing borders. And as you notice from this one here, suddenly, as they're busy here, look what happened there. Holy crap. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. All that was coming out. How's that possible? Almost like it was part of their plan, wasn't it? From there, a tug of war occurred as territories and troops were shifting back and forth while the war raged on. This would continue until around October, by which point Typhus was tearing through the Ukrainian forces and would eventually wipe out over 70% of the troops. Wait, are you saying that they use biowarfare again? It was the same. Oh, they had typhus, right? We know what it is there, right? I'm just saying. You know, funny thing is, and I wanted to point this out, you know exactly where you're going depending on the way you dress. When a nation is entering depression, long skirts were always seen present. Shorter skirts were a time of a bull market, right? of winning things. You've got to pay attention to all aspects. See, this is how you see the signal. Almost like the stuff that um, Barack Obama put out. Didn't he put out, oh, his playlist? You got to read the playlist. It tells you everything you need to know. Having said that, isn't it funny how everyone was having plagues and weird shit? We called it the Spanish flu. They called it typhus. <laughs> Almost like they might be the same thing, but you know. This severely weakened the Ukrainian odds. But the signing of the Treaty of Warsaw with Poland in April of 1920 would see a renewed hope for taking down the Bolsheviks once and for all. This wouldn't last long though, as in October, the Polish government would sign a peace treaty with the Bolsheviks, ending their aid to Ukraine and leaving the latter once again weakened and alone. In November of 1921, the UNR tried one more time to strike the Bolsheviks with the Second Winter Campaign. The goal was to rekindle enthusiasm and a spirit of uprising within Ukrainian peasants and partisans. But the campaign resulted in a devastating failure, with 443 men being captured and 359 of those troops being executed by the Bolsheviks. Now let me tell you what really happened. What really happened was, they use that second wind as an excuse to get Ukrainians into Ukraine territory to be placed in the right government. At that time, we had already formulated a Ukrainian bank within the United States. And this is where my video comes in at some point. So they established a Ukrainian treaty. And if you actually look throughout time from the early 1900s until today, how much money we have been paying to the Ukrainians, even though we still had Stalin in power, we were still creating this Ukrainian story thing. Pretty bizarre, isn't it? Pretty bizarre. And Poland was like, yeah, we're going to deal with the Bolsheviks. It's cool. We're going to hang out with them. That's because Stalin was already being prepped. They already had their guy.
And that's how it happened. Although partisan fighting would carry on against the Bolshevik forces throughout Ukraine, this was the undeniable and rather humiliating end to the Soviet-Ukrainian war. The aftermath of this years-long conflict would be devastating for Ukraine's hopes of independence and severed ties with Russia. Instead, the Ukrainian National Republic, now replaced by the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, would become one of the founding members of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics on December 30, 1922, and the government of the UNR was forced into exile, no longer able to fight back. Of course, many Ukrainian nationalists would attempt to do just that for years to come through partisan guerrilla warfare, but this would prove futile. When the Holodomor, or terror famine, of Ukraine hit, the final lights of hope in Ukraine were snuffed out. Ukraine would, from that point on, remain a part of the Soviet Union until 1991. On August 24th, the Supreme Soviet Parliament of Ukraine declared that it would no longer follow the laws of the USSR, instead only obeying those of the Ukrainian SSR. A few months later, on December 1st, the citizens of Ukraine were given an independence referendum, in which an overwhelming majority voted in favor. The Soviet Union as a whole collapsed. And now you see your first rigged elections on the record. Do you know how much money we gave them to conduct these elections? Right. The more you know. The more you know. Huh. It's so interesting, isn't it? The more you know. Again, history repeats itself only because people don't know history. We never won the Civil War. We did exactly what they wanted. Yes, the values are there. But here it is. America 250 is to educate us that after 250 years of assault, minutes, <laughs> I would say seconds after signing that Declaration of Independence, they had already planned it. And that is real history. And that is exactly where we're at. We're at the middle of this war, and it's up to us. Well, I see many saying, oh, when is this going to happen? You think this happens on its own? Do you want, what, a handful of people to help? We have everything we need. The only thing we need is people to actually want to fight. And we just don't have people that are willing to fight. Well, my listeners know that. The question is, how are you the underdog when you're the majority? How are you the underdog when you allowed this to happen? If you had the power to allow this to happen because you were distracted, the whole world is. As you can see, what happened at the turn of the century 1900s is happening now. What happened at the turn of the century in the 1800s, 1819, funny how that works, is happening now. Well, don't you have the opportunity to change it? Are you waiting for someone to sweep in and do it for you? Have you filed a lawsuit? Have you challenged the status quo? Here's the thing. Stolen elections and by being able to rig elections is how you maintain control. Because you give the illusion that the people have chosen, and that is the way it is. We need some signs. Well, I could tell you this weekend is going to be full of them. 
just on a random Tuesday, of course. God bless. Have a great weekend. And I appreciate the prayers for my baby.